This Wellness Couch podcast proudly brought to you by the Nourish Me Organics Gut Health Gurus podcast hosted by food scientist Kribben Govinda. If you're fascinated by all things gut health, the microbiome, fermented foods, mental health, mitochondrial health and more, then search for the Nourish Me Organics Gut Health Gurus podcast on your favorite podcast app and get listening. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hey guys, how are you going? As we head into our 43rd episode, can you believe it? 43 episodes of sitting behind my computer interviewing incredible absolute trailblazers in the industry soaking up so much knowledge and insight um i've got some sad news this is going to be our last episode of home base hope um that makes me a little bit emotional because i yeah i just feel like i am in a bit of a transition point in my life at the moment And I really think it's, you know, it's okay to pivot and to turn. And for me at the moment, this is where I am in my life. And it means um, that I won't be doing the Home Best Hope podcast anymore. And I know for some of you who have been following so closely along and tuning in every fortnight, I know... um, You know, it's going to be a bit different for you because you won't have this to look forward to. But I want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for supporting me. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for opening um, your mind to different ideas and interventions that are out there. Thank you for being the trailblazer that you are supporting your child. Um, You guys are amazing and it's you guys that are going to not only change your child's life and the trajectory um, of their life, but also the opinions and um, the opinions and the ideas of people around us in our community. You know how we are perceiving autism and what it means to us and to the community. Um, I do want to leave you with some final thoughts, and I want to remind you to. To rise above any negativity that comes your way, any judgments, you know, don't spend any amount of your energy on this. It's totally not worth it. Rise above it. Um, Continue to have your insatiable quest for knowledge. I know those of you who are listening into these podcasts, you are just wanting to soak up as much as you can. There is so much information out there. It's um, I know podcasts are a fantastic way to tune in and listen because you can be driving to work, whether you're jogging at the moment, whether you're doing the dishes, folding the washing, whatever it is that you're doing, um, it's a great way to absorb the information. So um, there are other podcasts out there on autism, so check it out, um, see what resonates and what feels right for you. Um, and remember that there is no one more powerful than you. You are so powerful. You are unstoppable. So continue doing what you're doing. Um, you're amazing and I love you guys so much. If you want to continue to follow my journey personally, um, I'll obviously be over on Instagram. It's still under the account at homebasehope. Um, so I'd love you to connect with me over there. Come and say hi, guys. I am not afraid of conversation. I love connecting with you and, um, yeah, I'd love to see how you're going on your journey. So enjoy the very last episode of Home Base Hope. Love and light to you all. Take it easy, guys. Hey, guys, and welcome back to the Home Base Hope podcast. Today we're talking all about defiance and quote-unquote challenging behaviours. I know the issue of defiance can be a really big challenge for a lot of you, so I hope that this podcast um, will give you some insight and some practical strategies on things that you can do at home. So today we're talking to Ariella Liu, who is a qualified pediatric nurse and the director of Kids On Track Consultancy, which is a private practice based down in Melbourne. 
Ariella provides expert advice and management strategies for families requiring support with their, with their child's behaviour, sleep and toilet training. Welcome, Ariella. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I know it's taken us a little while to get this underway, but finally we are here. Absolutely. Um, so, Ariella, at the start of each podcast, I always like to step into a time machine, rewind the clock a little bit and find out a little bit about your story so the listeners can find out a bit about you and why it is you're so passionate about kids in the area that you work within. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I got into, obviously, kids now. I think I always wanted to work with kids. Um, and actually, even when I was doing my hospital days, um, my passion was always working with parents and making things easier for parents. Um, and then around about the time that I got tired of, well, I guess there were two triggers. One was when I was doing my training, and the training in the UK is very different, as you can hear, I'm not from around here. And um, when I did my placement in a special needs school, I just fell in love with special ed and I fell in love with, you know, seeing the difference you can make by implementing some really small strategies. And I remember coming home and saying to my parents, oh, I've done the wrong degree. And my parents just kind of said, okay, we'll just finish the one you're on and then we'll, <laughs> we'll worry about the rest later. And obviously I qualified and then I went into hospital nursing. And then the second thing was around about the time I was tired of shifts. Um, a lot of my friends started having children of their own and I was getting them sleeping through the night and I was getting them toilet trains and I was getting them, you know, all that kind of advice that parents seem to need in that kind of zero to five age bracket. And um, it was actually a very good friend of mine who now lives in Manchester, who will probably kill me for mentioning him on a podcast, but um, who actually phoned one night, his wife had been having a rough time and said to my husband, you know, your, your wife's been amazing. There's a business here. And pretty much that's how it was born. Um, and that was... Well, um, 2009, back in the UK, so it's been about 10 years now. Uh, excellent. And I know I did read on your website that you like to take a holistic approach as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, very often we look at the problem that's in front of us and we solve the problem that's in front of us, but we haven't really solved the cause of the problem that's in front of us. So, you know, and I, I think that extends to so many um, issues of what I do, whether you're dealing with toilet training and, you know, you want your child to be toilet trained, but actually they're still constipated until you deal with the constipation. You might have some short-term success, but you're not going to have those long-term gains that you want because you haven't dealt with the underlying cause. And obviously with behavior as well, you know, um, I guess the common sort of, easy one that parents will relate to is sort of, you know, the thing we all know that after a new baby, generally in the first couple of years of a new baby, um, kids that are already there start acting out a little bit. And the reality is until they fully understand what's going on and the baby's there to stay, but their place in the family is safe and they're getting more one-on-one -on -one time with their parents, you're not likely to see a massive improvement. Mm. I think that that's what I mean by holistically. It's really got to be you deal with the effects that the behavior having, of course, and you put in your strategy to make things manageable, but you've also got to deal with what's causing the behavior. Otherwise, it's going to come out in a different way. I love it. And that is very much um, what I'm about as well, because I think, yeah, very often we are just looking at the behavior, but we're not looking at what, what is causing it. And that is what, that's what we need to be focusing on. Yeah, and I think also for parents, you know, that idea of what's causing it, what's causing it is often very overwhelming. And mm. it's necessarily about, you know, we're talking, I'm talking about little behaviors here. I'm not talking about, you know, diagnosis and even that, but even if you're looking at the thing of, you know, are these tantrums normal? Or is it something more? Is it indicative of a spectrum thing or is it indicative of something else? I think that it isn't about the label. It's not about the diagnosis, but it's about understanding what's going on in your child's head that's causing this, you know, the best quote ever is that thing that, you know, behavior is an insight into emotion. Behavior is the physical outlay of what's going on inside. So chances are, if you've got challenging behavior, you've got a child that in some area or other is struggling. That doesn't mean that the behavior is okay. That doesn't mean you don't need to deal with the behavior, but it does mean that we need to look at why they're struggling. Why are they having that many meltdowns? Why are they not listening on such a regular basis? Why are they seemingly hating mummy and daddy and 
you know, hitting them every time they walk past. What is it? Why? Because it's until we deal with the why, we, we can deal with the what. Like, you know, we, we can, but chances are it's going to come out somewhere. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And there's so many things. Like when we do take that holistic approach, there's so many avenues, like you said, like constipation, you know, so there's obviously like a medical side, there's the biological side, what's happening inside their body, what's the stress response like, um, you know, it's social, you know, there's just so many things and I'm sure we're going to cover that today. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, let's, so we're talking about defiance. What can defiance look like in a child? What are we looking at? And I think this is probably dodging the question slightly, but I think that defiance looks like whatever parents find is defiant. So for some parents, it is literally feeling their child doesn't listen. For some parents, it is feeling that whatever they ask, the answer is no. So it's kind of that, um, you know, contrary, you know, there's the not listening, there's the being contrary, there's the on their own path and stubbornness. So I think it really depends what some parents can deal very well with a child that doesn't listen. And particularly when your child is little, some parents are very happy to just, okay, they're not listening. We'll pick them up and do it our way. It doesn't really matter. And for some parents that doesn't stress them out, but you get a child where you say black and they say white and you go through that 15 times a day and that gets parents to the end of their ropes. So I think, the word defiance, and obviously, Rihanna, we spoke about this a little bit last week, but I think defiance at the end of the day is a behavior, and defiance is kind of saying from a child, I want to do this my way in my own time. So the question is, obviously, for parents, that can be impossible because they can want it now, and a kid can want it in seven hours. Well, if you're trying to serve dinner, you're not really willing to wait seven hours, and certainly if you're trying to get out the door to school, you're not really willing to just say, oh, okay, you don't want to go today don't worry about it. So I think it's about working to, and I'm sure we'll cover this a little bit more later, but working to find that common ground where when your child is displaying these defiant behaviors, whatever those look like, they feel you're meeting them halfway and you don't feel you're giving in on the bottom line, right? So is it something like going to school Going to school is not the negotiation, but whether they walk to the car or get a piggyback to the car or put their shoes on in the car or as a treat, eat breakfast in the car, that's where you negotiate. Mm. Not about saying you can't have black and white. Of course you need to have black and white and they have to go to school. That's not, you know, unless they're sick or whatever. That's not the discussion. But if they don't, if they feel it's all on your terms, then none of it is on their terms. And that's particularly true for kids with additional needs. Hmm. on the spectrum they have to feel that they have a level of control over what is going on yeah and I think this too is really reframing our perspective around it because you know if you search defiance or if you search oppositional defiance or you search something like that it'll come up with like a list of symptoms you know this 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 sort of like these tick boxes um So it is, and I find this so interesting that it is about our perspective, you know, what we consider as a parent to be defined. Because like you said, there is this whole spectrum. Uh, you know, I know from my mother's group, some parents let their kids get, I, I think, get away with anything and, you know, they're happy, they're not stressed out and they are um, just more at ease with with some of the behaviours that kids will have. On the other end of the spectrum, some parents are highly wired and um, they can't do anything and it's got to be under their control. Everything's got to be very structured and um, I suppose, yeah, these parents are the ones that might find that their child is being defiant um, because there's not as much flexibility in the routine. Yeah, but I, and I think even more than that, I think, um, you know, you talked before about looking holistically. Looking holistically is not just about the child. In fact, about 20% of it is about the child. About 80% of it is looking at the parents and it's actually about, you know, if I went into any area of my practice with a one-size-fits-all rule, so whether it's behaviour or parenting or toilet training or sleep or whatever, the reality is if I tell every parent the same strategy, it's not going to work for every child. Number one, because children are different, obviously, but also because parents are different you know and you do see I I don't do sleep training for really little ones but 
within sleep training with slightly older ones when it becomes behavioral. If parents don't, aren't willing, and that's not a bad thing, but aren't willing to use certain sorts of sleep training, they're not happy with control growing, they're not happy with closed bedroom doors, they're not happy with whatever it is, there's absolutely no point in me saying to them, well, that's the only way your kids can sleep. Because if they're not happy with the strategies they're implementing, those strategies are never going to be implemented properly. Mm. I think that's the other thing. It's actually about what can parents deal with. It's a 24-7 job. It's a tough gig. And how do we, when we're looking at defiance, how do we know, you know, there are so many times, and I'm sure, you know, you've seen it in your mother's group or you've seen it with your clients where you just want to say to parents, back off, walk away, just leave it. It's not a big deal. That's not the battle to fight. And that is the case. But you know what? You don't know how many battles they fought since this morning. You know, we always talk about kids and their meltdowns, and I'm sure we're going to get to that. What builds up to a meltdown and what builds up to a meltdown and what builds up. But you know what? Parents are the same. And you know, their tolerance is wearing thin depending on how tired they are and their work stresses and financial considerations and what's going on in their relationships and what's going on with their child. How many times that day they feel like their child doesn't listen to them. How many times they've run late. How many times, you know, so we're very good at looking at it from a kid's perspective. But I think sometimes with defiance, we also have to look from a parent's perspective. It's how much tolerance do these parents have? And if the answer is, they just don't have a lot left in the pot right now. We have to work with them on what is manageable for them. Mm. So it's not about saying that isn't defiance because maybe that is defiance for them at that particular time on that particular day in those particular circumstances. Mm, absolutely. I love that. Um, so what are some of the pressure points then in a child's day that can trigger some of these defiant behaviours? What do you see a lot of? What's common? Okay, so I think it depends. Obviously, every child is different. Um, I think the morning routine is a big one. Big, big one. And particularly, I know um, a lot of your listeners have children who are on the spectrum um, or have additional needs. So, you know, that morning routine, um, getting through that morning routine is a big one. I think once you get to... Um, childcare age or kinder or school age children I think getting through the whole of the school day by the time you get home you have a pressure cooker that's ready to work. if things haven't gone on during the, and then of course when they get home you've got this relatively short period of time in which you've got to go through you know homework if applicable playing with siblings being in their space if applicable bath time teeth at dinner time, story time, bedtime. So that's another one. Um, obviously, anywhere where, particularly for children on the spectrum, where they're put in a situation where they have to socially perform, whatever that looks like, whether that is literally just holding their natural tendency of behavior inside because they can't just say what they think and they can't just, you know, have a meltdown. And, and most kids don't. Most kids hold in the meltdown. Most kids hold it in till they get home. The majority of kids, okay, I'm not saying they never have a meltdown at school or at dance lessons or at karate or whatever, but most of them, that's not where the behaviour is from. You know, if I went and asked the, you know, the amount of times that parents say to me, oh, we're having all of this, you know, defiance, not listening, my kid never listens. And I'm like, yeah, let's do the school report. They're angels at school. So, you know, it, there's that. So I think anywhere where there's been social expectations. And the other one that I think, we often don't think about is mealtimes. Those sensory triggers. And by the way, that's not just for kids on the spectrum. I think, you know, working in this field for a long time now, there are very few human beings that don't have sensory triggers. Very few. So anywhere where there is going to be a sensory trigger, be that noise, be that visual stimuli, be that mealtimes and the taste and the smells and whatever. Again, you know, those kind of things are often... That, that sort of defiance, that starting not to listen, that starting to dig their heels in is often, I wouldn't even say step one, but kind of, you know, if the meltdown comes at number 10, that's almost like, you know, they're at number four once you start seeing that they're well on the way. Mm. And I think too, when kids are, you know, what can exacerbate it is if they're particularly stressed that day, if they um, upset you know something hasn't gone their way if they're hungry if they're tired these things can just blow it out even more 
Absolutely. Anything like anything like that. And I think that's why, again, coming back to that looking holistically, it's not about, you know, one of the first things when parents come to me with challenging behavior and my kids not listening, one of the first things I'll say is, okay, for the next 10 days, I want a behavior diary. A full behavior diary. What did they eat? How much did they sleep? Um, what happened at school? Which, of course, you don't always know. But let's figure out what we do know. Let's figure out, is there a difference on school days? Do we suddenly see that on a Wednesday, Wednesdays are bad days? Maybe they've got a lesson on that day where they don't like a teacher. Maybe they've got a lesson on that day where there's a sensory trigger. Maybe, you know, I think there's a lot that we still don't know. But I think, you know, the same is true of adults, right? On the day that we, you know, all our meetings have run late and we've sat in a traffic jam and you know, it's been a really difficult day. We're going to have less patience with our kids. We're going to, by the time we get home at the end of the day, there's less of us left. We're not in the mood to discuss the health insurance and the, you know, and that let's put the car in for a service and all those mundane things. But yet, and, and we all have days where we're like, okay, we're done. We're writing off the rest of the night. We're not doing anything else. We're done. As much as we can do is to, you know, sit on our pajamas in the couch in our pajamas, on the couch, and, you know, what, you know, watch something on Netflix. That's about the amount of energy we have. And I think we probably, if we're all honest and look in the mirror, are a lot less tolerant of our children doing that. Mm. For all good reasons. We want to instill the right habits in our kids, and we want to make sure that they know that, you know, brushing teeth is not negotiable, and sleeping in pajamas is not negotiable, clean clothes, you know, putting your dirty clothes in the laundry basket is not negotiable. All of that's true, but at the end of the day, Will they still be fully round, you know, fully rounded human beings if they miss a few nights of those things? Of course they will. That doesn't mean I'm giving, you know, saying, okay, yeah, just don't do those things and the meltdowns are going to go away. But I think we do need to look at making sure that we cut kids the same slack that we would cut ourselves when it's been a particularly challenging day. And I think, you know, one of the things that I always get into trouble saying in forums like this, you know, I think we... We live in a world now where even looking at adults, there is so much pressure on us. And this 24, you know, you and I were on the phone the other night, at, you know, 11 or something crazy because that was, you know, the first time we'd had that day to sort of chat and plan this and all of that on a Sunday night, which is great. But it's that culture of one, instant gratification, two, this 24 hour, it never stops, it never stops with the phone and with technology and all of that. It, it's being in a rat race all of the time. And I think because parents are in a rat race and sometimes have to be for financial reasons and there's no judgment there, but I think that means that kids end up in a rat race. So it means that kids that, even kids that do struggle socially or haven't had a good night's sleep, they're still going to have the full day at school plus possibly aftercare, plus then they've still got a karate lesson, plus then they've still got a family dinner to go through, plus they've then got homework. So you know, it's a big day. It's a really big day. And the question is, are we contributing to the amount of defiance we're getting because we're actually having unrealistic expectations of kids as human beings, let alone any diagnosis or anything else? Hmm. I love the idea of a behavior diary. So if parents are listening to this now, what could they do? So it's something that they can reflect on, you know, how many weeks, what can they write out? What do they need to be looking for? It's a great question. Um, so I think a behavior diary, first of all, you need at least two weeks because you need at least two of every day of the week. So that's why two weeks. It is tedious. Um, but I think what happens very often is when you're in a tricky stage with your child, for whatever reason, you know, and a lot of them we've talked about today, they're not feeling well, there's a new baby, there's a, it's a school, whatever, teacher they don't like. When you're in the middle of it and you're the one on the receiving end of a kid not listening, a kid swearing, a kid hitting, a kid doing that, it's very hard to see the patterns. But almost never have I seen a behavior diary that doesn't have patterns. And when I say patterns, those patterns can be that you notice that the day after, and I'm not advocating that every child should be gluten-free, that's not where this is going, but the, after they eat a certain food, the day after, they don't sleep well. Or their behavior is more out of whack. Or like we said before, on a day they have a certain lesson at school. You know, Wednesday's a school day and both times on a Wednesday, something goes wrong on a Wednesday night. So it's just about looking at what, what is going on. Or we suddenly see, not that you know, most parents know if their kids are hungry or if their kids are tired or if their kids are, 
you know, whatever, those are triggers. Most parents know that. Parents are silly. But sometimes it really is knowing, you know what, the difference of going to bed a half an hour later or half an hour earlier is making the difference to a meltdown versus, you know, defiant but not a meltdown. So it's actually being able to look, what time did they go to sleep? Did they sleep through the night? What did they eat that day? What did they do that day? Who were they interacting with that day? And the things you're looking for are things like, do they have a particular, do they seem to be more settled on a day they've spent with particular people? Do they seem to be more settled on a day they've done a particular activity? Like, you know, for some kids that I work with, there are some of it, as much as I've just said, after school activities can be your worst enemy. There are some kids for whom swimming or karate or a dance class is allowing them to expand in energy. And it's almost providing that sensory trigger the other way that it actually calms them and it calms them in a way you can't do it at home. And particularly that's true if it's kind of a one-to-one type setup um, in those kind of lessons. And I'm not, and I know that's a financial expense, but that, that can often be the case. So do you find that on those days and the following days, your children are more likely to be calmer? Or the opposite, do you find that actually on a day where they've had a really long day, that's kind of, you know, out the house from eight till six, that the next day is impossible. Those are the kind of things you're looking at. Mm. On, that, on that topic there, um, what if the dance class did make them calmer the next day or that evening? This isn't something that parents can do every day of the week. What would they do then? You know, if they... they so then it's about saying, okay, what, what, is, what is a dance class? Let's break it down. What do they get in a dance class? So... Is it a one-to-one dance class, in which case it's one-to-one attention with somebody? Is there a way you can get some sort of, and again, I'll probably be yelled at for using screen time as an example, but is there like an equivalent like, you know, Nintendo Wii or something like that where you can do one of the dance party games and whatever, and when they get home, they do that for 20 minutes? So can you replicate that actual movement of dance? A great one for kids who are into something like dance, because we've used that as an example, is something like a trampoline. The act of jumping, the act of movement, that alone is often, I mean, you're an OT, you would know, um, but, you know, fantastic. So it's about looking at, okay, I don't have a swimming pool in my backyard, so I can't replicate swimming. What does swimming give them? If it's a case of, and our one little boy that I worked with a couple of years ago, who the idea of water was calming for him. So we actually instituted that he now has three showers a day. He has one in the morning. So before he starts his morning routine or anything else, he has a 15-minute shower. Before he starts his homework, he has a 15-minute shower. And before he goes to bed, he has a 15-minute shower. So again, what is it? Is it about the water? Is it the sights and the sounds and the smells of the water? If so, chances are parents have a bathtub. Chances are they have a shower. Chances are in the warm weather, they have some equivalent of a paddling pool that they can fill up outside and let them go play with balls or whatever in the paddling pool. So it's about replicating what they're getting in that activity in whatever way you can. Mm, awesome. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Great. So if parents are finding that their child or they're perceiving it, that they're being defined, so they're not mm-hmm. going along with the rules that they're setting out at home, if they're constantly saying no to everything, you know, everything is no, I don't want to do that, and it causes a meltdown, it's hard to get them out of the house in the morning, um, and, you know, I'm just picturing the parents who are sort of at the end of their tether. They, they can't cope. They, they just don't know what to do or where to start. What are some strategies? What are some things that they can be doing at home? What tools, what advice do you have for them? Okay. So, again, coming back to what we said before, the, the not keeping the rules, I would say, is a different defiance to the saying no or not listening to things like put your shoes on, brush your teeth, uh, help me make dinner, whatever. I think the two are different. So the first thing to say is hang in there. Hang in there. It's a phase. It will be a phase. It doesn't go on forever and it will pass. The second thing, again, which is all very cliche, but it's so true, um, pick your battles. So if you're finding that, the morning, because that's what you've just brought up, is the crunch time for you. Number one, before you start anything in the morning, your kid needs to have something 
that's going to re-regulate them before you start. Right? So like the little boy we just talked about before the morning routine, he does a shower. If you know, okay, and obviously in the morning you don't want to start messing around with screens because it's difficult. But I find that in the morning one of two things works really well. Either you do like a race the clock for the morning. You get the whole thing done in 10 minutes, right? So dressed, they can then have breakfast in front of the screen if they really want it. But dressed, teeth, bag packed, whatever they need to do is done and ready. And then it's downtime for them. So then they get to go play with their Lego if that's what they want to do. They get to go do some coloring if that's what they want to go. They get to go do whatever makes their happy place. They get to go do their happy activity. And I think, you know, it's an analogy I always use with parents. And I think it's just a powerful one. So I'm going to use it. But you have to imagine, and this is true for parents and for children, the human brain is a, imagine that the human brain is a glass of water. There's an OT, you've probably heard this. Therefore, it can only fit so much in. At the point you go to bed, you want that water level to be at its lowest. Because overnight, it's not going to drop anymore. It's going to be the same the next morning. So the other thing, it's, it's about looking at how wired is your child. If they're going to bed wired, they're going to wake up wired. So when parents say to me, but first thing in the morning, they're like that. Yeah, but how calm were they when they went to bed? And that's particularly true for sensory kids particularly true um so there are only two ways to bring that water level down so if you imagine you wake up in the morning and the water levels at a good 50 percent right which is what you want it that's basically where you want it very few human beings exist on lower than that all the people we talked about everything you do throughout the day every conversation every traffic jam every lesson that this kid sits in is raising that water level again obviously depending on the demands on them is how much it's raising it but we do very little to try and bring that water level down. So the idea originally when, you know, things like um, lunch breaks were instituted by law in the workplace was for exactly this, to give an hour to bring down the water level. Well, most of us don't use our lunch breaks to bring down the water level. Most of us use our lunch breaks to catch up on our emails and to exchange one level of stress, which is the workplace, for the home stress. So most of us don't bring down that water level, and particularly the children that we're talking about who are on the spectrum and who may have some of that social anxiety. Lunchtime at school is not calming. In fact, it's using even more social energy because they may not have the skills that some of the other kids have to be able to navigate what for them is a bit of a minefield. So it's about finding, however, for every person, there are things that calm them down, that bring that water level down. The little things. So for some people, you know, we talked about before, it's vegging out on the couch with Netflix. For some people, it's, for some little kids, it's sitting building Lego. For some kids, it's Minecraft. For some kids, it's, so it's not about, those things are tools that parents need to use in their, as opposed to listening to this, no, don't let kids do that and don't let kids do that. It's all bad. If those are the things that are actually going to help you. So it's about building those things in because that's one way the water level comes down. The only other way the water level comes down is with a meltdown. One of the things I always say, and parents now, all your parents are going to now turn off, that actually, that meltdowns are actually parents' best friends. When they happen, they're a nightmare. And particularly if they're happening, you know, in the middle of a shopping center car park, which of course is where they always happen. Or, you know, in right where you need to be somewhere, they're a nightmare. But on the other hand, that is really bringing the water level. You're taking the water level from like 100 back down to 60. It's really, whereas kind of, you know, a game of Minecraft's going to get you back to 75% and you're going to have to keep instituting it, a meltdown is going to totally reset the clock. So one of the things I would say is to parents, and I know it's easier said than done, not my kid, but don't be scared of a meltdown. Don't be scared. Obviously, if your kid is big and you're worried they're going to hurt you, there's got to be a safe space where they know that they can be, I am a big fan of, you know, particularly for teenage boys, if there are, you know, parents of teenage boys who are violent, you know, we all, um, there's a great book, which I know we're going to be talking about a bit later, um, called The Red Beast, which talks about anger and how you feed, what feeds it and what puts it back to sleep. Now, the things we all, when we feel angry, anger's not a bad emotion, but it's an, it's an emotion and it's coming out in behavior. So for some people, anger looks like shouting. For other people, anger looks like crying. For some people, anger looks like violence. 
Now, obviously, it's not about advocating violence, obviously. But it is about saying, okay, well, if that for them is what is going to bring them back then, can you put a punch bag in the garage that they can go out there? Can you actually train them? Can they, as an after-school activity, do kickboxing? Can we actually give them that outlet in a managed and safe way that they're able to access? So I think that's what it's about looking at, is about making sure that throughout those trigger points of the day, the reason kids are becoming defiant, and again, looking at cause and symptoms, the reason, irrelevant of whether it's because of siblings, because of feeling crowded, because of too many people around them, because of sensory triggers, because of, doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, the reason they are defiant is going to be because of one of those things. There's no such thing as they just are. They're not just. There might be personality in it, 100%, but there will also be a real reason. There will be something that's happened, so it's about acknowledging that. Okay, no problem. Awesome. So what about um, for the child who is defiant at school? Because obviously there's a lot more rules, there's regulations, everyone has to conform to what's going on. And the child who's defiant, obviously, you know, they can stick out like a sore thumb and it's really challenging for them. How can we support the child who is not coping at school and is being perceived as constantly defying the rules? Okay, so I think, again, most children who are constantly defiant at school not really constantly defined at school. It's just there are certain rules within the school that they can't follow. And in the same way that parents, once you're in it, you feel like it's constant. Um, you know, the same is true of schools. So if you've got a child that's fighting on school uniform policy, potentially because of sensory issues, could just be that they're defined, but could also be sensory issues, that, you know, is fighting on, I don't want to go to certain lessons, for whatever reason, I don't want to go in those lessons. I don't like the aid, so I'm not going anywhere with the aid, that's a big one. So I think it's actually about taking it back to basics. There are some kids, again, parents will probably hate me throughout the land, but there are some kids who actually, full-time school doesn't work for them. It doesn't actually work. Forcing a square peg into a round hole never works. So first of all, it's about looking at some of the triggers I just spoke about, right? So something like uniform. If you are having a meltdown every morning or every day they get to school and by break time they've pulled off their, you know, uniform blazer, they don't want to wear that and they don't want to wear the shoes because they'd like... I think it's about saying to the school, you know, we could potentially get this kid here if they can just wear their trainers. It depends what it is. They can't walk around naked in school. But, you know, if, they're, if the school are willing to say, okay, as long as they're in uniform colours... That's good enough. Again, it's giving them a sense of control. A lot of kids that are defiant at school, it's about control. It's about the fact that at school they feel totally out of control. They didn't choose the timetable. They didn't choose what lessons they were in. They didn't choose who the aide was. They didn't choose who the student. They haven't chosen anything. The other thing is, depending on what lessons they're struggling with, it could be that they're struggling with the layouts of how that lesson is run. So a lot of kids can't, so for example, um, one of the ones I see a lot in my practice is schools that have um, a foreign language being taught. A lot of children with additional needs struggle with that because it's very frontal teaching. So there's no way to kind of wander about or, you know, do so. some of the other teaching methods. You've got group work here and you've got this here and you've got, there's a, there's a lot more of that going on in schools, but with things like, foreign languages and some of the more practical bunch, you've got a lot of frontal teaching. So it's about actually saying, okay, during frontal teaching, you have to give an alternative for what this kid can do because otherwise we're setting them up to fail. So very often the defiance in school is, did we, if we know that a kid struggles with one, two, three, four, we need to give them A, B, C, D. One, that's our strategy for one. It actually needs to be broken down. And I think when you're dealing with, Big, to be honest, however old they are, but particularly the older kids, so kind of, you know, eight and up. <clears throat> we need to look at with the school, and I've done this a few times with parents, actually having a basic behavior contract. So go back to basics. What are the bottom lines that this child is not allowed to do, which are going to be things like hurting other people, damaging property. I'm not saying any kids are doing that, but hurting other people, damaging property, 
listening to basic instructions and actually have it as a behavior contract. So that very often what happens is parents are saying to the school, you need to discipline. The school is saying to parents, you need to not send my child here. You need to not send your child if they can't listen. But actually everyone needs to get on the same page of what are the expectations and what are the consequences if those expectations aren't followed. Once everyone's on the same page, the effect of that, while the defiance may not get any better, all the stress comes out of the situation. When all the stress comes out of the situation, you are calmer. Chances are your child is calm. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, because I think it can be totally different, obviously, between home and school. Um, and whether a child is having challenges at home, sometimes they're fine at school and sometimes they're having challenges at school, but they're fine at home, you know, vice versa. So um, I, I call think... it the seesaw. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you have kids that are fine in both at the same time. It, it generally is they're better in one. Like we talked about before, the kids who hold in the meltdowns for home, it's one or the other. It's where at that particular snapshot of time they're coping better. Mm, absolutely. And obviously you know, their whole life, you know, if, if their world is consumed by um, these challenges and they're constantly just fighting a battle with themselves, with the daily situations that are arising, it's going to affect other areas of their life. How, how can this impact? What can be seen? So I think um, relationship stress is a big one, you know, between, you know, mum and dad, whether together or not. Um, you know, that thing of, you know, trying to get themselves on the same page because actually they're so bamboozled by the whole thing that they don't even know where they sit because they're spending their life firefighting meltdown to meltdown. That's very difficult. I think there's an impact on siblings, definitely. Siblings, um, and not, not even, I think to say siblings feel neglected is to oversimplify. But I think it's siblings feel that the child that is being the defiant one, the child who is being the more demanding one, and fair enough, is the favourite. Is the one who is getting a lot of the time. So it's not just that they feel neglected, but they also almost feel like resentful of the time that they're spending. And then you end up with two children that are defiant, because then you end up with the child who started off being defiant in the first place, but you also end up with a sibling who ends up being defiant because they're kind of like, well, this seems to work. So we'll go down that road. And I think, I just think more than the specifics of what goes on, I think the knock-on effect onto a parent's lifestyle is enormous because I think no matter how, you know, we started at the beginning saying it depends how a parent defines defiance, but that feeling that you live your life fighting you're waking up with a knot in your stomach. You're going to bed with a knot in your stomach. You're not going to be the best version of you because you can't be. And I think, while well, you didn't ask me this question. I think that parents, it's okay to say I'm not coping. It's okay. And particularly now with the NDIS and the packages that they are giving, and there are things in those packages also for parents' support and for parents to get support. My biggest thing would be use it. It doesn't make you a bad parent to say, I can't be with my kids 24 hours a day, or I need a night off here and there. If you're lucky enough to have, you know, grandparents that are on the ball and involved and happy to help, let them help you. If you've got four kids, it doesn't matter. If you don't want to give the one that's having meltdowns, fine. Let your other kids have a once a week sleepover, you know, so they're getting that one-on-one time. You know, if you've got, you know, an eight-year-old, that's impossible, but you've got a six-year-old and a 10-year-old who are really good, but you don't get to spend time with them. So one night a week, know that Tuesday night, they each, you know, separately, they're getting that one-to-one time, they're getting it from somewhere else. Doesn't make you a bad parent. It actually makes you human. And I think there's a certain strength in saying we can't do it all. We can't do it all. And I think parents, you know, if I could say one thing, it's that reassurance that this does wreak havoc. This does wreak havoc and this can wreak havoc. And I think those self-care things are really important. I'm a big fan of date night. I tell all my clients, if you're getting, if you if NDIS is funding you to get respite, go on a date. Get a babysitter, go on a date. Date night is really important. If you want a relationship intact at the end, <laughs> date night is really important. Do things that work for you. Obviously, easier said than done, but I think that's really important because if you're not in the best space, you can't 
you're not going to be able to respond probably mm-hmm. this way. Absolutely. Self-care is so important. And this is something that I talk a lot about as well is that we need to um, be able to self-regulate our own emotions because this is what we're trying to encourage our kids to do is to really self-regulate, to go, you know, I am angry, but what can I do? Can I punch that boxing bag? Or what? how can I use these emotions differently rather than whatever my current behavior, whatever, I'm, however I'm currently expressing it? And the same is true for us. You know, how can we um, model that for, to them as well? Because so often we live in this state of stress because our world is so busy these days. We've got so many things from the time we wake up you know, as you said, to the time we go to bed, our day is just chock-a-block. Um, so we need to learn how to respond to stresses in the day. And so often our kids can be that trigger that just sets us over the edge as well. And we take it out on them. Um, but if we had things like date night and if we had things that relieved our stress and that we could do and we set aside time to go walking or we set aside time to listen to music or our favourite podcast or whatever it is, I think that's really important too. So I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, also we are talking about before, like the kids making sure they've got downtime and that water level's coming down. We need to do that for us as well. Kids yeah. love what they see. And uh, there was a great quote I saw last week that said, it's not a new quote, but, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? Th- this is what we're saying. If you have nothing left to give as a parent, if you are struggling as a parent to the point that you're really feeling whatever, you're not, you just won't be able to give what you want to be able to give. And obviously then the guilt kicks in and, or, and of course it does. But I think it's about trying to preempt it before it. Mm. That. Awesome. Well, was there anything else you wanted to add to that before we head to our five rapid fire questions? No, I think that's pretty much it all. Awesome. All righty. So number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? Um, Some version of family mealtimes. Some version of once a day sitting down as a family, whatever your family looks like. And what that means is kids facilitated by adults, whoever's home, once a day to actually learn to talk to each other and actually learn to be in the moment and actually learn to exist as a family. That's how family bonds get formed. Love it. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Well, um, never ask me that they wish that I wish they did. Um, I wish that more parents were easier on themselves about that it's okay ask for help and it's okay to not be able to be on the go 24 hours a day and it's okay to struggle I think I think we're not good at asking for help when we need it and then probably also taking the help when we need it Mm, absolutely question but I think that you know I think there are parents whether it's calling me whether it's calling you as an OT whether it's calling any professional parents are hesitant to make that call and I don't think they should be Love it. Number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Okay, so I actually am not a fan of books for parents in general because I find it goes one of two ways. Either they get to the end of the book, they haven't actually absorbed anything in the book, um, but they've taken like one sentence out of somewhere totally out of context and it all goes wrong. Um, But I think, or they kind of take it as gospel and aren't then able to, kind of say, okay, well, you know, my kid didn't do it like that and always say to parents, you know, the one thing no parenting book is going to tell you is that kids are human beings, right? Read all parenting books in the world, not one, not one says it, like not one. Um, but I think anything that deals with children and emotions is really important. So we talked before about the Red Beast. That is, that's fantastic. I think that book should be in every house. Mm. I think book. It's a great book. It is a great book. I recommend that one as well. Number four, what is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? Um, probably my husband and I are very into travel. So probably to do, um, we did a road trip through America a few years ago, so probably to do the other side of America um, on a road trip. That, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> That'd be nice. Alrighty. Number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Have realistic expectations of yourself and more importantly of your kids. Awesome. Love it. Thank robots, you. Neither are they. Say that again. Sorry. You're not robots and neither are they. Yeah, no, absolutely. All human. Uh, you need to write a book about it then. It sounds like it's needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how can everyone find out more about you, Ariella, and your work? Um, so I have a website, um, which is www.kidsontrackconsultancy.com. Um, and that kind of gives a very basic overview of what I do and my contact details are on there. Um, and also we have a Facebook page and an Instagram that are regularly sort of updated with, you know, where we're at and what we're doing and tips and tricks um, for parents. Great. Um, so obviously Facebook would be Kids on Track Consultancy. Yeah, Kids on Track Consultancy. All one word. Okay. All one word. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ariella, for joining us. I have learned so much and I really think you have really helped us to reframe our perspective around defiance and it's really been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you, but more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all, so if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search Home Base Hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.